Today on Foodstuffs. We talk to someone with a vested interest in fish farming. And a perspective that would seem to be at odds with the popular understanding of the industry. Canada, where we respectfully respect each other's differences. Hi, I'm Gord Cole with Aquacate Fisheries in Perry Sound, and you're listening to Foodstuff. Was that good? Look at that, first take. Okay, thanks, Beauty. Brian. Thanks in Perry Sound, in 1982, when we first established the farm, the estimated lake trout population was 200 adult fish. Fifteen years later, they figure it was somewhere between 15 and 30,000, wow. and now there's far more than that. So we had intended on just posting our new episode as per usual yesterday, um, and then something happened. W- what happened? <laughs> uh, dark laughs. Um, I don't know. The question I think for a lot of people is what what did happen, right? Because yeah. I think if you live in the world that we live in, which is a, a liberal social media millennial Gen X world. I think there are a lot of people in that world that me, are. Brian. <laughs> oh well, come on. But I think a lot of people are are asking that. What happened? Yeah, for sure. Who? What? Why did this happen? And there's a lot of anger and confusion, uh, and there needs to be more understanding. And absolutely, I don't know. I don't know if we're. Are we ready for that? Are you ready for understanding and acceptance yet, Jess? <laughs> I mean, I think that we have been practiced a little bit in Canada. I think that it first happened, um, was it in 2010 with the re-election of Stephen Harper? And then um, living in Toronto, obviously, um, when I moved here, Ford was already uh, the mayor, but uh, kind of seeing him re-elected, it's one of those things that when you're surrounded by people who think similarly to you and you live in a city that's one of the biggest cities in the country, you don't really consider that there are enough people to counteract kind of, I mean, your rationale, I guess. Um, so it really does catch you by surprise. And then it is a, it's a reckoning and sort of like trying to see the other side and understand right, yeah. that there's a disenfranchisement that's happened because I do think that I have been brought up this way and I've like seen the development of um you know my politics alongside a large swath of the populations but um there's traditionally disenfranchised groups of people that have become politicized in that time and um it's just changed the landscape of things and it's something that you know it's very easy to get upset about and uh to feel frustrated about but it's really belittling and um and dismissive to to pretend like they don't have their reasons for what they're doing. I really want to think that it's a point of uh, from a place of education that um, I just don't understand. But the fear, I guess, comes in that it's very much not that. And to make comparisons to Stephen Harper and Rob Ford are completely offside at this point in time because there's there's a there's a hatred element. Um, going on in this situation and that's the part that really just took the wind out of me yesterday yeah there se- there definitely seemed to be during the campaign and certainly in parts of um uh donald trump's life and the way he's lived for sure it will be interesting to see 
how much of that exists during his presidency mm-hmm. and what the impact is. Because I know, like, even uh, the last time Stephen Harper was elected, there was a lot of noise around uh, potentially changing abortion laws and things like that. Yeah. And obviously that, that didn't happen. And, you know, the thought is that a lot of this is sort of, you say what you got to say to get elected. And sometimes what you need to say is some radical shit that gets, you know, you know, there isn't going to be the actual national support to do something like uh, repeal right, uh, abortion laws or things like that. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's a lot of doubt over whether or not even things like, you know, building a wall or um, Are feasible. making yeah. sweeping changes to immigration will actually happen or even if they were ever a real intent versus just a, sort of a strategy to get certain votes. But like you say, there is a population that does feel disenfranchised, that does feel like they've been left out of the conversation that does feel perhaps that they were ignored by the, the Clinton campaign. And one of those uh, groups that we talked about was uh, people from middle America, uh, white yeah. blue collar workers and yeah. um, relevant to us in that group are um, uh, farmers. Um, yeah. There is a lot of farmers that I think feel that he's going to be the one to help them. Yeah. Yeah, it's really quite something to watch the election results come in and, and watch this little blurb up in the northeast and then obviously along the west coast um, where the electoral votes don't match the size of the of the state, forgive me. And then you see these swaths in the center where it's like this is only two or three electoral votes coming from a whole state versus obviously California is the big one. It's 55. But um yeah, it's just uh, it it is not to be taken lightly, and it's kind of a just because you're from a smaller or less dense population doesn't mean that a, a presidential candidate should overlook you and not be swinging you in the slightest. It's pretty disrespectful. Absolutely, and I think again, like we've talked about this a lot, in that you know farmers work really hard, and people do not value food like they used to, like they do currently in other countries that's right Um, they do not want to pay a lot of money for food um and thinking about larry mcgill here yeah yeah like our our farmer friend larry mcgill spoke about this that he prefers selling to foreign markets because they do value food yeah they want to they they want to process it themselves they want to make stuff at home they they'll they're willing to pay a premium and it's important to them that the quality is good here, almost none of those things are true. Yeah, they respect the ingredient and make sure that it gets used to its fullest degree. Yeah, um, that was a really interesting conversation. For those who haven't heard it, you should go back and listen to our conversation with Larry McGill to know what we're talking about here. But um, that isn't the kind of farming that we're talking about today. Um, but we are still talking to a farmer today, right? We are indeed. We're talking to a, a fish farmer. An aquaculturalist is the other uh, term. Um, his name is Gord Cole. I spoke with him. Um, actually, I met with him uh, about a month ago when I was up uh, north visiting my brother, doing some location scouting for another project. And here is this guy that's been operating a fish farm on a native reserve, the Wasoxing uh, Native Reserve. Um, Gord is not um, uh, First Nations, but he is operating on a First Nations Reserve. I had a lot of sort of thoughts come up when I first heard mm-hmm. that, uh, but I got to speak to him a few times. I got to speak to a lot of people that worked at the farm, a lot of people, um, native and non-native that that live in the area. 
And your your sister in law is um, from Wasoxing, right? That's that's right, and her whole family and um, some of her family have worked at the farm as I understood it years and years ago. Um, so yeah, there is a connection, and honestly, uh, people have almost unilaterally have positive things to say about Gord and of the fish farm. Um, they've become an important employer, and fish farming as an industry has faced a lot of criticism um, that I think is sort of left over from the mid eighties. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone has this residual feeling where they can't quite place it, but they, yeah, they have sort of, yeah, they have a perspective on it and they don't know where it comes from. And sort of the understanding that I have around fish farming. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people that feel like, yeah, there are, they're not exactly sure, like you say, they're not exactly sure what the issue is, but they think that there is some sort of <laughs> negative environmental impact. And those those thoughts are not completely unfounded, and we do get into that a little bit in this interview. But what was surprising and um, interesting to me was that um, there have been a lot of positive impacts uh, that uh, the fish farm has had on the local uh, areas in terms of and wildlife mm-hmm. uh, and ecology, yeah, that I that I think are really interesting. So uh, that's what made me want to talk more with uh, with Gord. So I called him up on the phone and uh, had another conversation with him. Yeah, I don't think we should get into it any further. Let's uh, turn to your interview here. We got a hot potato. Um, so here is Brian speaking with Gord Cole, the owner of Aqua Cage Fisheries in Perry Sound, Ontario. My name is Gord Cole. I'm co-owner of Aquacage Fisheries. We're a commercial fish farm in uh, Perry Sound that's been running since 1982. We grow rainbow trout in cages. The business is actually located on Wasoxing First Nation, which works out quite well for everybody. And uh, 34 years later, we're still in business. There you go. So, for those who don't know, Wasoxing First Nation is uh, on Perry Island um, in uh, Perry Sound. So what about that area drew you there? What, why did you choose that area to, to, to farm? Oh, very good question. We're located in Perry Sound uh, because in order to grow fish, you need certain physical characteristics. You need water that's, that's uh, deep and cold uh, with good proximity to to shore for harvesting. So we were fortunate that Perry Sound uh, seemed like a good spot. It's worked out quite well, fairly close to uh, southern Ontario, which is which is our market. So it's like any other activity that requires certain natural resources. You have to go to where the resources are. And did you had you ever been to Perry Sound before? How, how familiar were you with the area? Oh, it's it's funny. No, it, we'd never been to Perry Sound. We essentially picked the location from a map, okay, and our location yeah. was chosen by my by my partner. We looked at maps. Uh, I was working in New Brunswick, where fish farming was just getting started, and looking at maps of Georgian Bay, and it, I thought it looked like a a good spot, and it turned out to to be pretty good. Well spotted there. So yeah. uh, you uh, Georgian Bay, as I hope most people would know, is uh, a freshwater. Can you tell us the difference between uh, freshwater uh, fish farming and and saltwater? What we do is very similar to to fish farming, uh, say in Norway, Scotland, east coast, west coast of Canada. Uh, 
The difference, of course, is that the fresh water has certain advantages um, and certain certain problems. Some of the advantages are is that we have much less problem with predators. We don't have seals. We don't have dogfish sharks uh, tearing holes in our nets. We have far fewer disease problems. Uh, there's no sea lice, for example. Quite a number of the other diseases just don't occur in fresh water. Another advantage is that we can start with fish that are quite small. We don't have to wait until they're large enough to introduce into salt water. Some of the disadvantages are, the primary disadvantage is our water gets very cold in the wintertime. Of course, Perry Sound freezes. Our ice will be 50 or 60 centimeters thick every winter, and we get zero growth for five or five and a half months of the year, whereas in salt water, the uh, temperatures are more moderated, so they have slightly better temperatures in the summer and better temperatures in the winter as well. But it works out quite well. Okay. I know you've, I've, I've read lots of articles where you've commented on this in the past, um, but for those who haven't uh, heard the for and against argument, there are a lot of people that are critical of fish farming and mostly citing uh, environmental concerns. Can you tell me where that argument comes from and what, what the impact is on the environment that you've seen? Oh, there is a big question. You know, yeah. it's interesting, the anti-fish farming sediments weren't around when we got started in business. At that time, everybody thought fish farming was going to be a good thing, and it has been a good thing. Okay. And then in the late 1980s, the Alaska commercial salmon fishermen actually started paying a well-known environmental activist, who I won't name here, to demarket farm salmon. Okay. So for the next uh, 20 years, this particular individual and his organization released a lot of misinformation, some of which was simply intentionally misleading and some of which were outright lies. And for some reason, it caught the public's attention. Now, the, the, the facts, as I see them, based on 30-odd years of experience, and certainly in our case, is that fish farming, as we do it, has no measurable impact on water quality, we have 34 years' worth of water quality testing to, to show that. Uh, and that information should be a matter of public record. The Ministry of the Environment has all the information. We actually do about 187 water tests per year and send each one of those tests to two separate accredited laboratories. And there's no difference between the water quality near our cages, as far as we can measure, between near our cages and at remote locations, and the background level of the water, phosphorus, for example. And we should, sorry, just to jump in there, yep. that argument really comes from, like you say, the f two things, the fish uh, food that you put in the water, yes. the, that the portion that is uneaten, and also the excrement, the poop of the fish, that being harmful to the environment. That's what well, we're sort of yeah, talking well, the about as the basis. Uh, right? Anti-fish farming environmental uh, arguments, there's, there's, there's a number of them, and they keep recycling the same arguments. Essentially, the first claim is, well, you're having adverse water quality effects. And then sort of that gets disproven. So they say, well, the waste in the bottom is a problem. Turns out that's not true. Well, your escaped fish are going to be a problem because they'll establish a reproducing population. Never happens. Well, your escaped fish might crossbreed with a local fish. Well, in some cases, the local fish are totally different species and crossbreeding is impossible. Or in other cases, for example, 
in our situation, the rainbow trout we're growing are exactly the same as the rainbow trout that the Ministry of Natural Resources, our local fisheries agency, stocks. So there's really no genetic concerns. And then sometimes the anti-fish farming people make uh, outrageous claims that farm fish are contaminated with PCBs or something else, which is objectively not true. And I can quote all kinds of numbers, but uh, you know it wouldn't, it doesn't make any sense. But the people that are, for the most part, behind the anti-fish farming, or have been in the past, were simply paid to say so. It's strictly mercenary. And as I always tell everybody, be, be critically consider whatever you're hearing about any topic, and look at what the person that's making the statement, what their vested interest is. Now, everybody listening to this to this podcast knows that I'm a fish farmer and knows what my vested interest is. Right, sure. But the information I'm providing is 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 based on you know many years of research done by third party uh, researchers and right. well documented. If you have somebody that's uh, an environmental activist, you have to look at what their motivation is. Do they honestly believe what they say, or are they on somebody's payroll? What's their what are they getting out of it? So right. You have to be you have to be somewhat cynical. So let's talk about, um, we've, you, you've talked about the water quality that over 30-plus yep. years of testing, we haven't seen any discernible difference um, or degradation in the water quality. Um, but you've seen some positive impacts in the environment and in the wildlife. Can you talk about, uh, talk about that? Oh, I'd love to talk about that. And that it, this all makes perfect sense. Essentially, all of the waste products from the fish farm uh, and the waste products from the fish farm are for the most part, there's extremely small levels of nitrogenous waste, which are irrelevant. There is some phosphorus, soluble phosphorus. Uh, it's, it's very dilute. We can't even measure it, but it's there. It gets quickly taken up by the food chain. And solid waste, which is almost all fish manure. Um, there's essentially no waste feed, not in significant amounts. Now, the fish manure, the fish poop, um, has fairly reasonable levels of protein, fats, and carbohydrates. So it's a nice little nutritional package. So what happens is all of the waste from the fish farm quickly becomes food for wildlife, you know, fish, mollusks, and things like that. In our case, um, they estimate that approximately 30% of the solid waste is actually eaten by small fish before it reaches the bottom of the bay. The rest of it is, is eaten quite quickly by invertebrates, which then become food for, for wild fish. So every, every place you have a fish farm that I'm aware of, there's significant increases in the local wild fish or wild crustacean population. For example, on the east coast of Canada, where there's salmon farms, quite often you have huge increase in the lobster fishery. Okay. At a friend's farm... Uh, cage farm on Manitoulin Island, there's been a huge increase in the perch population. In our case, what our farm has benefited has been the lake trout population, the whitefish population, the fiscal population, walleye population, and a number of minnow species. They've all increased dramatically since we've been here. Now, it's interesting that um, the body of water right beside our fish farm, Perry Sound, which is a bay off Georgian Bay, which is part of the Great Lakes, 
is the only area in the Great Lakes outside Lake Superior where the lake trout population has recovered. The lake trout population was almost extirpated through most of the Great Lakes. It has recovered in Lake Superior, and it's recovered in Perry Sound, nowhere else. Now, this makes perfect sense because the whole ecosystem is nutrient impoverished, which means the limiting factor for fish production is the food resource. Right. Okay. So if you add food to the system, you get more fish. Now, there was a controlled experiment done by the government, um, Freshwater Institute in Winnipeg, uh, part of the Federal Fisheries and Oceans, ran an experiment in two small lakes in northwestern Ontario. One la- lake they left the way it was. The other one they put a small fish farm in. This was a lake they'd been studying for 30 years. The lake trout population had essentially never changed. They put the fish farm in. Within five years, the lake trout population had doubled and was showing record growth rates, uh, increased reproduction, you know, all those good things. They removed the fish farm. The lake trout population goes back to normal. In Perry Sound, in 1982, when we first established the farm, the estimated lake trout population was 200 adult fish. Fifteen years later, they figure it was somewhere between fifteen and 30,000, wow. and now there's far more than that. That's amazing. And yeah. it really, it, like you say, it does make sense. Um, it makes perfect sense. Are there thoughts of saying, hey, let's use this as a sort of a two-pronged attack of not just a business, but also a way of being a, a, a positive catalyst for introducing or reintroducing wildlife in, into an area? Do you know if that's uh, happening at all? Well, you know, it's, it, it's, it's interesting, Brian, that, that, that's not happening and nobody's even considering it. Okay. The, uh, uh, Ken Mills, who did the uh, lake trout uh, study in the experimental lakes area, was quite surprised. He'd, he'd provide his, his results and his experimental work at, at uh, lake, trout, lake trout conferences, where they were getting very excited by increases in lake trout populations where you have one or two spawning pairs. He presented the information of the huge benefits to lake trout populations on fish farming, and he said nobody cares. And hmm. his theory is that, uh, if I understood, is that fish farming is just not something that the fisheries managers understand, and it's not part of their frame of reference. Okay. Um, even in Ontario here, the Ministry of Natural Resources is reluctant to accept the fact that the, the increase in the lake trout population is due at least in large part, to the presence of a fish farm. It's probably not the only factor. They have implemented some fisheries management techniques and so on. But the same management techniques that they implemented in Perry Sound haven't haven't resulted in increase in lake trout populations anyplace else. So it's it's puzzling that, that the fisheries managers don't look more closely at it. And I've always thought that even if they're not interested in putting fish farms here, there, and everywhere... They might be interested in, in what it is about the fish farm that is so beneficial to the lake trout population right. when nothing else seems to work. And then they may be able to use the same techniques with or without a fish farm. It's a, No, it's an interesting, interesting, interesting situation. Have you ever thought about uh, taking what you have and scaling it up in one way or another, whether um, occupying more space where you are or perhaps starting other uh, farms uh, in Georgian Bay? Well, sure, everybody thinks about those things. Uh, we won't be scaling up where we are. Uh, it would we'd have to 
would have to significantly change the way we operate, and I'm just not interested in, in right. doing that. Now, you used the, to have... The, sorry, any place you have a fish farm, there's going to be a limit on the size the fish farm can be before it does have adverse environmental impacts. Okay. You know, when I say fish farms don't cause problems for the environment, I'm not saying they can't cause problems for the environment. Okay. But if they're properly situated and properly run of an appropriate size, then they won't have they won't have problems. And the environmental impact of a fish farm in terms of negative impacts, you essentially have none, 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 and then you then you fall off the cliff. Oh, it's, okay. it's not a gradual increase. There have been cases, uh, I know a number of years ago, I was asked to give a talk in uh, Minnesota about growing fish in cages. They wanted to put cages in, in these old iron ore pits. Right. And uh, I told them it wasn't a good idea because you have no water exchange. There's not enough assimilative capacity. Well, they didn't listen to me, and they put cages in these iron ore pits, and you know, the waste just accumulates, oh, okay. and it's after a while, it yep. not only affected the water quality in the iron ore pit, but it also affected the local groundwater quality. You know, and people talk about expansion of fish farming in, in Ontario, and we should probably be growing about three t- three or four times as much fish as we are now. Okay. You know, it's not going to be a multi-billion dollar industry, but right now there's probably, oh, 250 people directly employed in growing fish and processing fish. And that could be 1,000. Right, okay. And those are full-time permanent jobs mm-hmm. in rural areas where the jobs are really needed. That's true. That's an important thing to point out is that the places that you would be, jobs are at a premium. And even if you're only employing uh, half a dozen people or a dozen people, a couple dozen people, those are valuable jobs to that area. Oh, yeah. Um, maybe you can talk about that, uh, your situation as well. As you mentioned, you're uh, Wasoxing uh, First Nation. You had to speak with uh, the chief and council to uh, to operate there, and you have a, an agreement um, of hiring uh, people or band members uh, to work on the farm. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship with uh, Wasoxing? Oh, I think we have a great relationship with Wasoxing. Uh, we have been dealing with them since 1983. In 1982, our first year, we were a different location. Uh, all we asked for was their support for the fish farm in general terms, and we promised to employ people. So starting in 1983, we started we started hiring band members, uh, both to work at the farm and to run a small processing plant we used to operate. We don't anymore. And, well, we, we did that with, with no formal agreement for, for many years. Um, after we, we, we did sign a formal agreement with the band, the agreement specifies that 50% of our employees who are not family, immediate family, or management have to be band members. And we're, we're at band members or island residents. And right. we're at uh, essentially 100% and have been for a number of years. So we're, we're the largest employer on the reserve. We have, I don't know, 14 or 15 band members working for us, I believe. And these are full-time permanent jobs, which are, which are very rare in the area, in the area we're in. So it's a, it's, a, it's a good thing. It's a significant benefit to the local community. As well as the jobs, we also pay them a, 
uh, monthly uh, stipend uh, kind of rental for the right. land base that we occupy. So they do they do quite well by the by the fish farm, and I believe most most band members are highly supportive. Not everybody, of course, sure. but most of the band members are highly supportive. It's sort of a low cost way to create jobs. Low cost in terms of having to give up anything else. You know, none of the other users of the water body are giving anything up. Right. Um, the environment's not giving anything up. And jobs are being created, and we're producing a, a tasty, healthy food product. So it's a, I think we're doing a, I think we're doing a good thing. Well, I would agree. I was up there uh, just a couple weeks ago and got to see the farm firsthand. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, and I've talked to people that, that work there and people around the area, and uh, yeah, everyone that I spoke to sees it as a very positive thing. Um, one last thing before you go, I just wanted to, your thoughts on the long-term future of uh, your business and, and this industry as a whole in Canada. Well, it's, uh, I think fish farming is here to stay, you know, and people are eating more fish. You cannot sustainably harvest more fish from the ocean. Uh, and in terms of wild fish populations, fish farms are, are way better for wild fish populations than than harvesting fish. I mean, if you're going to eat fish, you either catch it from the wild or you grow it on the farm. Now, I'm not anti-commercial fishing. I think commercial fishing is a good thing, and, and it needs to continue as well. In terms of Ontario, we're, you know, I think we have a, a nice little niche in producing fish. In, uh, in Georgian Bay, about 10 million pounds of trout comes off the fish farms in Georgian Bay every year. And the landed value of those fish is about the same as the landed value of the Lake Erie commercial fishery, which is the biggest freshwater fishery in North America by far. So in terms of, of overall economics, again, in the great scheme of things, we're, we're not like the car industry. But in terms of fish, we're significant, significant players, certainly in freshwater fish. I mean, my farm alone the landed value of fish from my one farm exceeds the landed value of the commercial fishery of all the upper Great Lakes, which is Lake Huron and Georgian Bay, Lake Michigan and Lake Superior, all species combined. You know, so it's uh, it's not insignificant. It's not, it's not a big deal, but it's not insignificant. I think the same pattern of growth is happening in the rest of the country, although probably quicker. I know in Newfoundland there's a, a Norwegian company has a proposal before before the Newfoundland government uh, to put in uh, to put an investment of two hundred eighty nine million dollars into producing salmon. I think they want to produce thirty seven thousand metric tons of salmon a year in Newfoundland. Now that's a lot of jobs, and that's a lot of money. I mean, thirty seven thousand tons of Atlantic salmon would translate into a landed value of about. $200 million, roughly, with a net economic benefit with the multi multipliers of close to a billion dollars. That's a big deal. Mm -hmm. You know, and salmon farming in other parts of the world, uh, it, it, it can be economically significant. In Norway, for example, salmon farming is their second biggest export after oil, and I believe they anticipate it will exceed oil shortly. Economically, it's, it's a very significant activity, and it's going to increase. In, in importance in 
in Ontario, Canada, and around the world, as long as people keep eating fish. Which I think they <laughs> I believe we will. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I like it. It's good stuff. It is good stuff. Uh, Gord, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity, Brian, and I hope I didn't sound too too ranty. <laughs> <laughs> And that was Brian speaking with Gord Cole, owner of Aqua Cage Fisheries in Perry Sound, Ontario, located on the Wasoxing First Nation Reserve. Um, so this was really interesting for me because I have to say, when you were telling me that you're going to do a story on fish farming, I am thinking about it from the point of view of a consumer who is going to eat the fish. Um, and so naturally, after listening to your edit, I gave my boss a call, Jeff uh, Hopgood, and was just asking his perspective on it. Because again, I think where we are, um, uh, we're fortunate enough to have access to some really beautiful products and a good portion of them are farmed. So I've sort of lost that um, association myself because I'm trusting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I'm trusting the, our suppliers, and I'm trusting Jeff uh, and his relationship with those suppliers. And in speaking with him, he he also had that initial reaction of, I know that when it's um, on land, farmed fish, right. that we're yeah. it's safe environmentally, and and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think that the landed argument. There are a lot of people that are pro um, land based fish farms. And I think I understand why. I think that that still comes from a place of the, uh, the idea that again this is a negative thing and how do we limit its right. negative impact? Exactly. Right? And again, there are potential negative impacts, but I do think that by taking it into a land-based approach, you're eliminating any of the positive that we've seen. Yeah, that's the interesting that thing. appears to be happening. Again, maybe more research ne- needs to be done, or but it does or... seem like there is a very positive or very real positive effect on the wildlife. So by taking it into a land-based approach, you're eliminating that. I but just think that as soon as you start saying overarching, yes, this, no, that, then it becomes problematic and there are nuances there. And if someone's responsible and being thoughtful and monitoring what they're doing and their impacts and they discern that there is positives happening, that that there's been boosts and that they can actually physically kind of point to the variable that is different here versus across the lake um, and that there has been an an improvement that is also worth looking into and that's also worth um, kind of seeing if it's true because what a a beautiful idea you know like we've overfished so many places for so long and the notion of actually bolstering a ecology for the better of all of the different species in the area that is actually a beautiful thing and if that happened to be true if we can kind of take that research and take that further I think that's uh, actually exciting and and it's unfortunate that someone would just say fish farming bad if it's you know what I mean and I think there's Again, a lot of that sentiment is leftover sentiment. And I have a theory about when um, industries are, it's often like an, an emerging industry is trashed or slandered or smeared or whatever you want to call it by the larger, more established uh, industry. Mm-hmm. That though that sentiment, that negative Sticks sentiment can stick with it for a long time. There's I some about, sort of similarity to like restaurant reviews in here, I'm pretty sure. If you yeah. knock a restaurant from the get-go, it's not going to 
be an invite for people to come check it out. Yeah. It's going to kind of put a black stain on it when there's so many other places to go even and if spend somebody your money. Came there, even if somebody uh, published a review that was a straight out lie. Yeah. And you could prove that it was a lie. Yeah. That your proof is not going to be heard as loudly as the initial lie. Yeah. It just isn't. Yeah. Right. And you look at other industries. I've worked with uh, the uh, uh, with a bunch of chiropractors mm-hmm. that talk about an industry that was smeared. They they sued the medical doctors decades and decades ago. We're talking in the I think in the 40s. They won. They yeah. won. They they proved that they were slandered. And still to this day, there are a lot of people that look at that industry and think, oh, they're not doctors. Yeah. And they're right. And where is that? Where does that come from? It comes from that. Look at, uh, you know, we talked about medical marijuana and uh, edible cannabis a few seasons ago. Look at the leftover negative sentiment that is still existing from the reefer madness days. Yes, that's right. right. I was like, what's the name of it again? A- absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I think that this is another example of it where, again, we have some residual, even with with Jeff, a person uh, like a chef who is uh, yeah. way more educated than the average yeah, person, exactly. still has some residual thoughts of you know, starting from a negative. Bad. Maybe yeah, there's something it's like bad, a foggy it. idea that yeah. it's like got to be careful there for sure. Um I, all this to say, it's just an interesting conversation and something to be mindful of amongst all of the ways that we all need to be really thoughtful about the seafood that we eat and order. Like frozen shrimp is scary. There's, right. you know, human slavery is a conversation that we need to be entertaining. Basically, unfortunately, all food has its pros and cons, its problems. Every industry has the, has this. And, I, and we're not here, by the way, we're not here to take one side or the other really what this is to me about is sharing a different perspective that I didn't get to hear a lot of, mm-hmm. right? And looking at this industry and where is the potential growth? Where is the 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 uh, if there's a positive impact to be felt uh, on the environment, on local economies, for local jobs in remote areas? Mm-hmm. Again, we should be talking about it, and we should look into it for sure. Absolutely. All right. We have reached the end of another episode of Foodstuffs. Thanks so much to Gord Cole from Aqua Cage Fisheries for speaking with me. Um, and huge thanks, as always, to Ken Stauer and Eric Batlam from CIUT. We are so happy to be back in our home at Studio 2. And thanks, of course, to you for listening. We wouldn't be here without you. No, we wouldn't. You can always subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or any other podcast app. Remember, we're coming at you every week this this season. Yes. Very excited to be doing that. You can connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Foodstuffs Life. Also, Facebook, just by searching Foodstuffs. And my very, very favorite, the website, foodstuffs.life. I'm Jessica Walker. I'm Brian Goman. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>